Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Jerry. <laughs> and this is our review of Sphere, starring Dustin Hoffman, Samuel L. Jackson, Sharon Stone, Liev Schreiber, Peter Coyote, and Queen Latifah. Directed by Academy Award winner Barry Levinson. Based on the book by Michael Crichton, released in 1998 on a budget of about $80 million, grossed just over $50 million at the box office. So, once again, we return to our Michael Crichton. So, <laughs> land of reviews here. I guess I guess fear wasn't enough, and we're just never going to do Jurassic Park. Yeah, we got a couple other ones, man. We should have just had this be the Michael Crichton retrospective now, and uh, thinking back and you know, hindsight. Yeah. Oh, here, yeah, so. he, he had a hand in Twister, too. That's right. I forgot. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were originally scheduled to do Backdraft, but it went away from the source where we were watching it, so we had to go with a different idea the first uh, time around, and we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. Maybe someday we'll, we'll get to Fire and Kurt Russell, but uh, this fits just as well as anything in our 90s monster retrospective thing. That's just like a square peg in a sphere hole. <laughs> now, I remember seeing this when it came out, then reading the book and, and thinking, you know, the book was far superior and that the film had, had a had something going, but it just never ah, was great. But then the thing is, like, I bought the DVD of it for, you know, two or three dollars in the bargain bin once. And I've watched it a few times. I've seen this movie several times. In fact, I watched it twice for this review. I don't. It never gets any better is the thing, but I just keep going back expecting it to. <laughs> I saw this once when it first came out on VHS. I remember uh, picking this up, uh, me and my dad picking this up at the uh, local mom and pop video store, watching it. Uh, remember a few little things from it, namely the sphere that's kind of like uh, what looks like it's a made out of like lava or like some type of like moving metal liquid metal terminator i don't know but um and then i remember Liv schreiber's character getting his uh face burned off and that was about all i remembered from the movie so uh coming into this i just remember that it was uh critically panned that this movie was rated as being one of the worst uh, movies of that year it came out and yeah, for this, I actually watched it three times. Now, not three times all the way through. I had to watch this three times because I kept on falling asleep. This is a common theme with you and what we review is it generally knocks you out so, in some yeah, ways. Yeah, <laughs> the first time I tried watching this was like 11 o'clock on a Wednesday or something, 11 o'clock at night, and then tried it again this weekend and uh made it through this weekend on sunday morning and then i decided to then, uh, <laughs> watch it again uh kind of in fast fast forward mode today because um well we'll get into it but i really didn't understand what the hell i was watching on sunday morning there's a lot of this that 
goes without explaining. But I think before we get into the plot, it, the thing here is that it's the team-up of Dustin Hoffman and Barry Levinson again. I mean, they made Rain Man together. They won Academy Awards together. And it always seemed to be such a an odd pairing because when I think horrific sci-fi action, I don't automatically think Dustin Hoffman. You know, I, I I don't know. There's something about that casting that I've always found peculiar, and and there's parts of this performance that I think are good, and then there's parts of it that I think he's exactly what's wrong with this movie. I I don't know that Barry Levinson does anything bad as a director here necessarily, because it's very, I mean, it is very very similar to the book. There's one change at the end that that the book fans really get upset about, but uh, for the most part, I mean, it it goes down almost exactly like the page turn book and uh it, but it's just executed differently i mean i, I don't know i it, we'll talk about the cast and the ensemble of it here as, as we get into it i suppose but particularly we'll we'll have to talk about our three leads because i think it is shared between stone jackson and uh hoffman but i don't know i th- it, th- this was supposed to be the the big pairing up again of the the oscar winners and i mean we've seen this before right and it sometimes it you know the the second Time down the aisle is pretty good. Sometimes it's not. <laughs> Sophomore sw- slump, I guess you could say. Um, yeah, from what I've heard about the book, I do not know the book. I have never read the book. Um, loosely know about it, but just kind of reading online, it actually is one of, it seems to be one of the favorites of uh, Michael Crichton from fans. Um, constantly reading like rankings of his book, and that one's usually ranked in the top three, right along with uh Jurassic Park and um, the Andromeda strain, like those three usually are the ones that kind of pop out and kind of can tell they got a little bit of like a pseudoscience uh, style to them. So, yeah, I mean, let's we want to get into it. Uh, why don't you hit us with the plot summary then, Jay? When psychologist Norman Goodman wrote a report for the Bush administration on how to deal with extraterrestrial life forces, he didn't expect his recommendations to be taken literally. Now that a secret government agency is investigating what may be an alien spaceship discovered partially buried on the floor of the Pacific Ocean, Norman finds that the plan he outlined is being put into effect, and the team, a psychologist, a biochemist, a mathematician, and an astrophysicist, all of whom he knew and named in his report, have been assembled. Upon investigation, the team discovers the spacecraft is American and from the future, though it apparently traveled through a black hole and crashed nearly 300 years ago. Aboard the craft is a mysterious giant golden sphere, which each member of the team enters, though they have little memory of having done so. Strange phenomena begin happening, threatening the lives and taking the lives of several crew members until three of the team, who are left alive, realize that it is the power of the sphere and their own subconscious fears which are manifesting the danger. They finally escape the deep sea habitat as it explodes and decide it's best to forget the power of the sphere as humankind is clearly not ready for it. And that is the plot summary for Sphere. I think it's an it's a simple way to get into it and then we can we can talk our way through the story here. But I love the setup of this. I'll say it's it's great in the book too is that we jump right in. I mean we're on a helicopter with Dustin Hoffman and I think that's Huey Lewis is the pilot. And they're they're flying him out there and He's like, you know, the, uh, where's the plane crash? Because I'm on a list of psychologists. The FAA brings in for that. And we come to find out pretty quickly that, no, there's a government agency that took a report he wrote 
15, 20 years ago and has now put it into to action. So he, he wrote it for the Bush administration in 1988. And so I guess it's been 10 years because this is 1998. And he wrote it essentially because they gave him $25,000 to do so. And all he did was come up with, well, if we, we, you know, we, we encounter aliens, we need a mathematician because that's going to be our common language. We need a biochemist to, you know, see their uh, habitat and how they live. And we need an astrophysicist to figure out where they are. And you need a shrink there because everybody's probably going to be freaking the hell out. <laughs> yeah, I never get that with no with math being. I mean, you hear, hear about that. Like, I think it was the movie Contact where like math is a universal language. OK, how the hell are you going to speak like <laughs> Are you speaking algebra? I, don't, I guess that yeah. would be the one time that that came in useful. I don't know. I, I've often wondered that too, because why are we to assume our mathematical phrases are the same as someone else's in the or some other beings in the universe? But you know, we could talk about that all day. I think that's the thing that Crichton introduces here is that it's all this you know the pseudoscience stuff like we talked about, but he's kind of light on it this time. I mean, it's it's not heavy in the book. It's not too heavy in the movie. It's all from the point of view of this psychologist and the idea that the the humanist among all of them would be the one that that put these genius you know minds together and and all he's worried about is sort of how they react to it i mean that's the idea behind the the whole team of the uh the elf the extraterrestrial life form force or whatever they're supposed to be called um hilarious here to me is peter coyote who is always playing some sort of military or government or you know business heavy of you know some kind or or on a lifetime movie and I, i love this guy because he he takes himself so seriously in every role and i don't know if that's like his thing his actor's thing or if he's just having fun with this ridiculous setup but he's not the only one who takes himself way seriously as this movie goes along you know just the first half hour of this movie is i mean did you catch this too it's alien in the water yes very much i mean almost like beat for beat as far as like okay the arrival the briefing the we're gonna go down we're gonna enter the ship oh my god we're gonna explore the ship what is this? And then, of course, then they find it. I mean, the very, very first half an hour, this is very similar pace to Alien. And I guess just watching this first like half hour, I've now watched it three times, is the first half hour is not bad. It's actually no. it's it's got some atmosphere to it. It's got some, you know, you know, some stuff going on. It's kind of like making you question like, oh, what is this really about? You know. Downed airplane, okay, spaceship, or you know, it kind of kind of leaves you with all this like these questions and like all these possibilities that this movie might go into, and that kind of leaves after the first half hour. But um, the first half hour, I really liked, and I, I like the setup for all these people. I just think it's funny that um, I'm, I'm not a big uh, God, what's his name, uh, Hoffman fan. I'm not. I always took him as kind of the ugly Richard Gear of his time. <laughs> as far as he goes um so it was just kind of like watching him be this psychologist not psychiatrist um which i'll get into later it just seems like uh he's just really like going overly serious on here where it's almost a hammy performance the entire way through it's totally hammy and let's talk about the human contact team here i already mentioned peter coyote who's the military liaison here and Queen Latifah is like his lieutenant or something, which is hilarious. Right? And 
they have good banner and stuff. But then the rest of the staff, like Liam Schreiber comes off like a astrophysicist. Like he sounds smart. I think that guy can be kind of anything. Even in bad roles, he can be pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. I liked him. I mean, he reminded me of some physical science professors I've known and things. I'm like, yeah, this this is total brainiac nerd. The funny one is Samuel L. Jackson. Because we always see him as this sort of halfway Newport smoking MFN dude, you know, <laughs> he's either like a, a bad guy with a heart of gold or he's the badass cop or whatever. But he is totally believable in this genius mathematician role. And I think it's all they took the glasses off of him. They shaved his head and his face. I mean, he looks so imposing because he's so freaking tall anyway. I really bought him. And I thought Sharon Stone was good, too. You know, they usually cast the the Hollywood It Girl at the time. And, I mean, this was in part of that heyday for her. I mean, Basic Instinct was a few years before. But she was, you know, super famous and stuff. And, you know, she's this gorgeous woman. And what do they do? They cut her hair off and they cover her up. And she has to play this damaged, neurotic biochemist. I bought her. Everyone here did a good job selling me of their role. Except Hoffman. And it's not that I don't think Dustin Hoffman's smart enough to play a psychologist. I, he, he reads lines and comes off like, yes, a psychologist in some scenes. But there's some scenes where he's so into whatever the hell he's got is his, his moment there, his acting spin, that he's, he's hammy. I think you've nailed it. He is so hammy sometimes that he really takes me out of the movie. Yeah, I just, I think it's just his voice. He's just, he does not have like that intellectual thing that they're going for in this movie. He just sounds like he just sounds like a schlub throughout the entire thing. Yeah, he's and, very uh, he's not it doesn't sound imposing at all, you know. You know, and he he just kind of comes off like a like like a wet blanket. I mean, it's he's not imposing, he's not doesn't sound articulate. He just kind of sounds like he kind of sounds like a just just a worn out history teacher throughout the entire movie or and that's what I figured he's, you know, that's what he probably should have been playing instead of a <laughs> psychologist is probably like some guy wearing like an awful tweed blazer and just, you know, smoking a couple cigarettes after work and drinking some cheap whiskey. <laughs> it, could, it could have been Donald Sutherland's character from animal house. I mean, that's more of what he comes off as. Yeah. Now, I want to ask you that now. Cause we do this all the time. Like recast it. Like if, well, first you agree with me about everybody else. Uh, for the most part, I'm not a big Sharon stone fan. I think um, she does play that damage, like probably on drugs persona really well. Probably a lot of that has to do with Casino. And, you know, she's really good in Casino, but like so good. It's almost like a, the guy who played Joffrey Baratheon in Game of Thrones where you just want to strangle him because you can't stand him. And I just I can never have that leave her face when I when I look at her it's just like all I do is I see the woman that screwed over Robert De Niro in Casino <laughs> all the time and plus she's had a lot of bad roles uh, later in her career um, terrible movie Cat, called uh, Catwoman the, uh, <laughs> Catwoman you ever see the movie called The Muse yes yes she's horrible in that terrible yes. that, but that's yeah. not her fault like she she took a she lot of jobs <laughs> well no no you take the check bro especially when you're a woman in Hollywood oh hell yeah you take every role they give you because she ain't getting those now like you know Sharon's yeah. still gorgeous but she ain't getting that role anymore so yeah that, I mean she's not like she looked like when she was in Total Recall no no I mean yeah that's the thing she was a bit player for years and then she finally you know made it with 
basic instinct. I mean, that made her a megastar. And she was in her mid-30s at that point, which in Hollywood for a woman, that's that's getting near the, the expiration date. Sad but true. And yeah. so she cashed in on it every way she could. I I liked her. I, I don't have a problem with her, but I, I can see what, I, your your arguments are valid on her. We both agree, though, that I, I like I like is, her better when she spreads her talent. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I see what you're saying. But let me ask you this, though. If we don't, neither one of us tend to like Hoffman in this role, then who could have done it better? Good question. I uh, wasn't prepared for that. Um, just running through my mind. You got to go back to like mid 90s. Ah. Uh, I don't know. Who do you got? I, I'll tell you right now. It's the other part of the Rain Man equation. I think Cruz would have been amazing at this. I think he could have played it just right. And Tom Cruise has has a range that he needs to stay within, but I think he could have pulled that off. The thing is, Hoffman looks like he's a contemporary, or he is at least as old as any of these people. So you buy him as having known Schreiber, who's you know much younger since he was a kid, and all these other people throughout his life. Cruz would have been more like he looks younger than he is, right? So they would have had to age him a little bit, which I don't know how he would have done. But I, I thought he could have done it. I mean, he's not bad. I, you know, they could have overcast it with somebody like Harrison Ford. I think that would have been kind of wrong. I don't know that that would have worked. But, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, of other people. The problem is, is you don't want to put somebody in there that's this physical action star because this isn't a physical role like even though he does some things where he jumps out of the water tank and swims and all this stuff norman is not the kind of guy that you look at and go oh that guy could really take me out i'll, I'll give you the perfect one though kevin spacey would have been awesome at it I, yeah, I kevin he, spacey would have been good i was even thinking yeah. like maybe like kevin costner i'm thinking of yeah. more than like his uh 13 days uh role where oh that's real- yeah where he's that uh overly emphasized uh kennedy representative <laughs> But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I see what you're saying. No, that that's a good a good call. I think either one of those probably better than what Hoffman brings us. But nevertheless, we're we're with Hoffman and we have to kind of stay with it. And I'm with you, man. The first half hour of this thing, it's it's a big mystery. We don't know what's happening here. They they go down, they look at this spacecraft, and they essentially go up to it and figure out that there's a door on it. And they uh, you know, they go to it and the thing opens itself up for them. And I wanted to ask you, is that the sphere opening the door for them? Does it have complete control of the ship at that point? Yeah, I'd say so. I was taking that that pretty much everything from that moment that they uh, stepped, you know, basically got in their water suits and went in there. The uh, the sphere was in control. So. Well, it's, the only thing about that that I, I'll say is that it's the only active thing the sphere does. Because the rest of the time, all the sphere does is just react off of what their subconscious is. So, and, and you have to like interact with it for it to be able to gain that control of you or power There's with you or so whatever. so much plot holes and stuff in this movie if you really want to get into it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're sitting here doing, right? I mean, that's that's the point of this is let's get into it. And I'll tell you now, it's it's something I've always bumped up against. I bump up against it in the book too is who opens the freaking door? <laughs> you know, it's like that the sphere apparently it's it, if if you say the sphere opens the door, it's the only active thing it does. The rest of the time, it's a passive entity, and that just bugs me that it opens the door to invite people into its lair like that. Well, passive in the way that it's physically not doing anything, but it's also 
creating physical objects later in the movie that are be able to do its thing. Maybe it maybe it made a squid inside the spaceship to open it up. I don't know. <laughs> well, that would be the uh, Prometheus answer, right? Uh, so uh, for all of that, you want to do your alien thing. But nevertheless, though, I do love the little bit around the spaceship because Norman's already confessed to Samuel L. Jackson's character that I made all this stuff up in this report. Please don't call you know call me out for being a fraud, you know, in this thing. And now he's telling Beth the same thing. I'm like, dude, you keep telling these people this. This is not going to end well for you. If we give the conceit that the sphere opens the door here, okay, I do like their chase around the whole spaceship here, basically, where you they see the trash can that's in Spanish and. English. Then Dustin Hoffman and Sherrod Stone find the cockpit and they see the dead astronauts with, you know, they got peanuts in their hands, they got their heads cracked in, and they get to watch their flight recorder. And basically that's where they discover they flew through a black hole at some point and landed 300 years in the past. I'm like, what? The conceit that this movie asks you to give it in the first half hour, I mean, it's bold. Like, you know, you don't. You don't often have movies that ask you to do so many things in the first half hour to just take off so much. This one really expects you to swallow a lot. I've seen episodes of Ren and Stimpy that ask me to accept a lot less than this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm almost certain this was an episode of Ren and Stimpy at one time. I think it was. Space Madness, I believe, is what it was called. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you know, though, you made a comparison that this is like Alien in the first 30 minutes, and I still think it holds up to that. I think this movie wants to be that kind of science fiction horror film because the way it's yeah, paced, I mean, the I music, mean, everything it is, is supposed to be a horror movie. The, the beginning of the movie, I mean, it wants to be alien in the beginning. I mean, it wants to be alien the way that a uh, girl who's a size 16 dresses as Princess Leia at a Comic-Con and wants to be Carrie Fisher, but it's not happening. It, it looks kind of the part, but it's it's not shaped right. <laughs> so I'm just... Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, though, I'll give the first half an hour movie a pass. It does have us, ex, you know, expects us to really, really take in a lot of stuff and give it a lot of leeway as far as the plot points and basically the setup that is coming. But after this first half hour, man, it just it, it is a drastic decline. And I don't even mean like hitting rock bottom. This movie delves so deep into shit. It's just <laughs> It's literally amazing. I'm just going to tell you this right now. Watching it today, I have never done this before with a movie, but I was actually yelling at the TV about just how stupid some of this shit was in here. <laughs> I, 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 I remember getting off to go into the kitchen to pour myself just like a, you know, a glass of water, and they're saying stuff, and I'm just – I'm actually talking to myself. I'm just like, you know, What? Get your medication. He's a goddamn psychologist. Okay, you guys aren't in <laughs> Illinois. You guys aren't in Louisiana. You guys aren't in New Mexico. He's not a. He he's a psychologist. It means he can't give you damn medication. Okay, yeah, that is the role of a psychiatrist. Yeah, that's true. yeah. So I'm just like, who wrote this shit? I'm like, come on. I'm like, freaking first year college students know that. Got you know, a 15 year old that goes to, goes to a psychiatrist to talk about their you know mommy and daddy know that and they don't even know that when they're writing the movie i mean come on I, you know i 
Uh, it's it's a hole. It's one of the biggest holes in the whole thing, and that's you know that's a script issue. That's not the the book's issue. Uh, psychologists can recommend that you should seek medication. They can't write you a prescription per yeah. se. I think Beth throws that at him at one time or another. I, so. Uh, if you want to stretch and give the movie a lot, you can say, well, you know, he probably sent her through the channels or whatever, but that's not what's there. What's there is this half-assed, you know, they had an affair love story kind of thing. He broke it off. She went off the damn deep end and has never gotten over it thing, which to me is the weakest part of all of this. Like you, you which said something. Isn't that, that going to break some type of like, like hypothetical, hypothetical or what is it called? Hi- Hypoth- hip- hypocritical, hypocritical <laughs> oath that they have where, He's dating his patient. Well, I, you know, that's the what isn't that the Hollywood thing that every shrink is screwing one of the patients? I mean, th- how many movies have that been made around? Prince of Tides, all the, you know, all these other yeah, things. I, mean, I was gonna say, what is he, Barbara Streisand? Well, I guess a, they were. I guess they <laughs> dig together and meet the Fockers. So. Well, there's there's that, but I mean, really, there's it's it's one of the weak points of the film. Again, the thing that really blows the air out of the sphere for me is the reveal that this is American spacecraft that somehow or another traveled back through time. Did it have to be? Well, see, it, I mean, that's the, the, it's also, it feels that way in the book. The thing is they can keep the tension up in the book because the, I guess the way it's written paces the tension better about all of the crazy stuff that starts happening to them, all the manifestations of their subconscious. I mean, we'll just say it now. I mean, they, one of them dreams up jellyfish and it kills Queen Latifah. One of them dreams up a giant squid and it attacks the habitat and, you know, nearly sets it on fire and kills a couple of people. And I, I think uh, Schreiber bites it then. And so does the, Peter Coyote guy. And then, uh, Beth dreams up sea snakes to go after, uh, Dustin Hoffman and so he you know he has to deal with that and then he dreams up some other he dreamed up the jellyfish they're all like they're dreaming that they're lost I mean that's all this they dreamed of every heinous awful thing that they probably could come up with to do this that's the conceit of the film and the film does a, an okay job of setting up those action set pieces but there's no tension to them like they just sort of feel like just beats that you go along the book builds the tension so much better when they reveal the American part of this the way they all play that off as if like oh yeah well hell yeah we probably did that sometime in the future the hubris of that is lost I'm like man no they need to have like moments and minutes of them going how the hell did we get that advanced that we built a spaceship that could travel through a black hole they never deal with that and it pisses me off bugs the shit out of me about this movie yeah i mean we'll get into all the stuff you know the basically what i call the ghostbusters ripoff where it's oh that just popped into my mind <laughs> but um, <laughs> um yeah yeah i think that's how the explosives get set at the end is oh i i just thought of dying and blowing shit up and oh, god, this, oh my god this movie is fucking terrible <laughs> Um, and it didn't have to be. That's the, that's the thing. Like I'm with you. This movie is terrible, but it did not have to be because the well, this premise. Is, this is this is like the shocking thing is just yeah. you got you got pretty good actors in this movie. I mean, I like Liv Schreiber a lot. He's really good in that Showtime um, um, series. If you've never seen that, Ray before. Donovan. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know Hoffman. I guess you know he's good in some stuff. I've seen really good in Rain <laughs> Man. But Dustin Hoffman is a fantastic actor who has picked some really lousy projects. That I've seen him. In a, I've seen him in a lot more bad than good. Now I'm not going to say I've seen his whole hubris before, but I've seen him in a lot of Meet Meet the Fockers. <laughs> well, I mean, he's at that point where he just gave up, like De Niro and Pacino, and he just cashes paychecks now. That's yeah, but he's his not, role. So. He should have went the way of Pesci and just stopped. But uh, yeah, well, he some people have. Shit 
shame, and then some people are artists. So I mean, <laughs> I, guess, well, you, I mean, yeah, if, if you've never seen like The Graduate or anything, I mean, that, this guy's fantastic in that. The Marathon Man, he's great in that. I mean, he's he had a lot of iconic American cinnamon roll cinema cinnamon rolls iconic American cinema rolls before he got into doing this shit so you know he's a good I, I, actor I, I did like him in that one movie uh, Confidence have you ever seen that I have not seen that but I've heard it's good so yeah yeah, yeah I did um, like him in there he played a sleazy like a uh, porn stripper <laughs> or guy the guy but anyways so back into this uh, toilet bowl um <laughs> sphere <laughs> so the thing i don't get to is this spaceship like i still don't get why it had to be an american spaceship why it had to be a human spaceship wouldn't it have been better if this was just something weird i mean you go back to alien which this movie so wants to be in the first half hour and we've already said it 50 times but mm-hmm. um wouldn't it have just been better if it was just like some mysterious spacecraft down here? And I, and I get that this is what the book said, but I'm, I'm mm-hmm. ignoring that the book exists right now. I'm just going off of a complete movie verse and what I've seen here. Wouldn't it have been better if that would have just been some type of mysterious spacecraft down there and they didn't know? Because I think by having it be that that was a human spaceship, it really takes away a ton of the mystery right away. Because it, well, you realize right away, okay, well, either that thing's got to be in the future or it's got to be sometime you know in the last like whatever amount of years so right away it removes that and then you realize like okay well that thing has to be something that they found or brought with them where i think if it would have been like an alien spacecraft it would have kept the mystery alive as far as like what that spaceship was there how that crashed what happened there and then what is this i think it would have had a lot more mystery involved in a lot more areas where this movie could have went to as opposed to basically copying the last 15 minutes of ghostbusters over and over and over and over again and i don't know who dreams of that shit i mean if it would have been me it would have been naked women running around with <laughs> in the spaceship not squids well i'll say this about about your idea there I, I don't disagree that it wouldn't make for a better mystery and things. I think it would. But that's not what Crichton or the people that are making this movie are trying to do. This movie isn't about space travel or even alien beings. I mean, the sphere is the most unexplained thing in the whole friggin' movie. But it's alien of nature, though. Well, I mean, well that it, it is. It is. But this is about human nature. And it's all summed up in what Hoffman says at, really at the end there about how we were given this unlimited power to, you know, manifest our dreams and we came up with the most vengeful, awful, hurtful, deadly things we could possibly come up with in just a matter of a few hours and we we almost killed everyone. So in other words, we're not good enough for all this. But is that true? Well, no, but that's what that's what Crichton is trying to say is that there's a reason that we haven't if there's a reason we haven't been visited and contacted by um alien life form maybe it is because the fact that when it comes down to it we wouldn't be able to handle it in any kind of a mature way i think that's what he's trying to say well i I look at it like this it's you know you got samuel jackson who some reason is like the biggest pussy when it comes to reading books is he can't get past page 84 and 2000, you know, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Give me a break. Really? He can't get past that. But, um, he's reading that. And if you know, you know, anything about the subconscious and dream patterns is by, you know, a lot of times the last things you, in, you know, intake mentally before you fall asleep, it do influence your dreams. I'm sure you've had that happen before where you've left the TV on and, 
a dream has been influenced by the TV that's on. You know, the sounds that are coming into there, going into your brain have kind of manifested. So are we really supposed to take that where Samuel Jackson is reading this book, he has a dream about a squid, which happens in that book, happens the same events that are happening in, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is happening to their space station. How does that equate to us not being ready or us like, you know, imagining the worst things in the world? I mean, come on. I mean, they just encountered some alien sphere. And of course, people's imaginations are going to run wild a little bit going, what the hell is this? Well, it's it's again what Crichton thinks about human nature is that no matter how enlightened and genius the people are that you put together and look the idea and i think even hoffman's character says it a couple of times it's like how did you come up with this team well it just made sense like you know i read good science fiction literature and it just kind of sure that kind of worked for me you know and and it does make common sense so like yeah those would be the you know three scientists you'd want together and having a psychologist around to keep them level is a good idea the problem is is he named people specifically Specifically, he knew in the report, and because they have relationships with one another and they know each other, you know, Ted and or uh, Liev Schreiber and, and Samuel L. Jackson are kind of academic rivals and, and such because Schreiber looks up to Jackson, but he can't tell him that. And then, of course, Sharon Stone and Dustin Hoffman have their sordid history because they have those relationships. That's what screws up the whole dynamic. If it had just been four other people this might have worked and maybe the experiment works better. I think what Crichton's trying to say is that the the problem is, is when you bring damaged people together to do things and then you put their existence on another level, that it would run awry. That's what he's trying to say here. The same thing as he was saying in Jurassic Park is that, you know, just because you can clone a dinosaur, maybe you shouldn't. And just because you can inherit power that allows you to manifest your subconscious, maybe that's not a good idea when your insecurities and failings as a person begin to hurt those around you. I think that's exactly what he's trying to say. He's, he's not interested at all in telling a sci-fi story like Interstellar or something like that, because this movie could have been that, but it, it didn't want to be. It, it, was a, it was a relationship drama with that as the backstory. I think that's what Crichton was interested in, was telling a relationship drama. I guess. <laughs> well, he I'm picked just, a terrible uh, way to do it. That's the problem. Is that and this script is a hack job from the the second act on, and it's just, well, I'm just it's thinking, one piece like, of how another. much of a cluster this entire mission is, where they obviously had to know these people had some type of you know professional relationship or something with each other. Yeah, can we say something about this government organization? They did a shitty job of background checking. I mean, they couldn't do anything. You got half the Pacific fleet out there no one's talking about on CNN. So clearly they've got some bit of, of secrecy to them, but they can't figure out that he used to sleep with her and these two have been rivals for years. I mean, you suck at your background checks, Osa. Yeah, you know, it had to have taken years to be able to build that base down there. You yeah, that's what I'm saying. It. Like, how long have they known about this thing? Because that habitat is not something you just drop in the ocean. And then, that's this been is like there something a while. out of Prometheus where it's just like, we're going to get these people together and we're going to send them down there right away. And it's like, don't you think maybe a little bit of like background and what you think this is and maybe a little bit of like surface exploration? I mean, there are like submarines and everything they could, you know, smaller submarines that they can man. I mean, God, God damn. I mean, James Cameron does. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say, could, where's, where's James Cameron to go deep? 
deep sea diving after this piece of crap. I mean, come I on, it's, it's right it's after like, that. So see, the thing is, like an alien, it's not even a conceit. It's just like it makes sense that it's like they're way out in outer space. They get a they get a signal, and it's it's code by you know the law there that if you get a distress signal in outer space, you have to go investigate it. And that to me, that makes sense. But here, it's like we got this government facility. They obviously have known about this spaceship for, let's say, five years. I think that'd be a fair assessment that they've known about it for at least five years. Probably the way the government works and how long it does take to get stuff down is probably closer to a decade. But they they, they put together this ragtag team in a couple days and just throw them down there with just no type of anything. As far you know what I mean, it's just crazy. Well, they, they go through all this stuff about if you go deep sea diving, you have to do all this training and you have to go through days of decompression. And I mean, they try to keep I'm that s- realistic, but it is the Armageddon conceit. Though. Have you ever gone scuba diving? Uh, no, I haven't. I've done snorkeling though, and so yes. that's that's as these close as I've had, gone. These people had about the training that you would give your kid when you're trying to teach him how to drive a bicycle with training wheels. No, no it reminded me, Nick, of the times I went on cruises and went on snorkeling excursions to the amount of instruction I got on how to use that equipment. It was yeah, about as in-depth. You're, you're standing on the beach in, 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 in your uh, life jacket, and it's like, you know, wave twice for need help, and then if you really need help – pull your thing and then your uh, your life jacket will uh, inflate up and everything. So, I mean, to, to send these people down there, they have no experience in some deep sea compression diving, let alone there's what, maybe three or four freaking people down there with them. Right. There's, there's three people or there's two officers. There's the Queen Latifah and Peter Coyote. And then there's the four of them. So there's six of them down there. You know, and then, and then, there, they, then there was another person who got crushed by the squid. Oh, there was that other just random person. You're right. I totally forgot about that person. I have no idea who that is. But that's it. Yeah. There's no military personnel down there. I mean, this is a military operation, and there's a ship down there of unknown origins, and they're not going to have any type of military, you know, you know, well, that, well, they, they, their their oversight is that friggin' uh, you know all the stuff that's up top. That's what they keep saying. At least is that it, they keep communicating with people on the surface about storms and all this, this other is, crap. This has got as many yeah. holes as Armageddon, or they're sending. Well, <laughs> you said it. I was about to bring that up. This feels like the Armageddon conceit, where all they got to do is drill, man. That's all you want them to do, Billy Bob Thornton. And then you know, next thing you know, uh, Bruce Willis's ragtag group of dudes yeah. is, is in. Space. So. We, we got we got a team of the the biggest geniuses and as you know engineers who have built spaceships and can pilot this and do this, but they can't drill a hole. We really need you guys. And yes, NASA was that in NASA in that movie. Yeah. They they built the drill backwards, but they can build a space shuttle, but they can't do the simple schematics of a fucking oil drill. Yeah. <laughs> Well, again, my, my, Michael Bay did not direct this film, though. Barry Levinson did, who you would think would come up with a better you know, conceit, but he didn't. And, and, the, and I think you've nailed it. Once they get past the big reveal, the stunner, that it's an American spaceship, this movie just goes downhill. Like, it can't recover itself because they let all the air out of the balloon. Even when they see the sphere, when you see the thing, it, it's this goldy, metallic ball of CGI bullshit that is not fun to look at it looks terrible it's awful it's terribly rendered the rendering of them crawling up it or going in it or whatever is awful it's 
it just takes you out of the movie. Now, the thing is, if you're down for some just stupid shut-off-your-brain sci-fi, you can kind of get into this because it gets to be fun when all the attacks start happening. Like, you were like, which which one of them is dreaming what? Like, that's the game you have to play to try to See, but enjoy this. See, it's not fun, though, because of that. Because even though all this crazy shit's happening, they're trying to ground it with all this scientific exposition bullshit. Well, that's what and I'm saying. Just, you, you skip through that. No, the, you the can't way to skip through it. Yeah, though. you can. The way to make this fun is ignore that crap and try to figure out who's dreaming what when. Because you can, I mean, it's a game you can play. You can figure it out. Who's so dreaming what when? That's what you're saying. Put Essentially, and have the fast forward button ready for no, when you're talking. No, just just put it on mute. Throw on some good music in the background and just sit there and figure out which one of them's dreaming what. Because I think that's that's a way you can have a little fun with this. Because otherwise, you're right. This is tedious bullshit. Even the keyboard scene where they figure out it's communicating with them and it. My name is Jerry and all that, which we find out later is Samuel L. Jackson is is the one that's doing all the the talking through the you know computer or whatever, and he did that as a mask so that he didn't give himself away that it was his subconscious talking to him the whole time which my wife astutely said so pretty much he's talking to himself half the time and i said yeah that's the that's the uh conceit of the film there dear so, and that's what they've come up with which is awful um i i um i find it humorous the the jerry communication bits um with one good point it's one of the times when hoffman's acting really works is Jerry says something about I am happy and everybody's like, Oh, that's great, blah blah blah. And Hoffman's like, Ah, oh, that ain't good. Because if it's happy, it can be mad, and I don't want to see it mad. And he's right, because when Jerry gets mad, bad shit starts going down. And that's pretty much when Harry gets pissed off, everything bad starts happening around that craft. Yeah, I mean, it, even like this stuff is so much like alien. I mean, when they're talking to mother and they're sitting there typing stuff in yeah. and mother's giving responses. I mean, this is a, a complete ripoff of that. And, you know, for a while I had thought Jerry was the sphere and I wasn't even really sure even after watching it, that it was Samuel L. Jackson's character. But I guess you're kind of, you know, clearing that up for me. Cause that was one of my questions that I had was, was it really the sphere or was it all of them kind of combined and they were talking to themselves or whatever. So it was, it was all, well, all the, the communication is Harry's subconscious talking to them. That's what that is in, in the computer scene. Now, the manifestations, each of them has a, has a set of this. Dustin Hoffman's tells the story about uh, when they pull Queen Latifah out and, you know, she's been destroyed by all those jellyfish and, and, uh, Sharon Stone's, you know, doing the autopsy, which a biochemist is not able to do that, by the way. But anyway, let's just for a second say that she is. She's doing the autopsy and Hoffman's telling this story about, yeah, my dad told me not to get out of the boat when I was a kid. And of course I did. And I got, you know, stung by a bunch of these, but not like these, not as big. And I'm like, so that's your manifestation. Cause clearly he went in this sphere. And then the giant squid is Samuel L. Jackson's because he's got a childhood fear of, uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea and the giant squid that attacks the thing. That's the part he can't get by. And then Sharon Stone's, her fear is that, uh, Dustin Hoffman won't, you know, care for her, and so she's gonna enact his, you know, worst fears on him, which are the sea snakes. That's the thing, and then she sets off the explosives. Harry's the one that thinks they're always lost and are meant to die there because he's always said that. It's only Hoffman's character that finally realizes, no, we'll just press the damn button and then we're out of here. I mean, that's that's pretty much the film summed up. So I've ruined the drinking game for all of you now. But I mean, that's what it is. I mean, that's what the stupid piece of shit is it's what it's trying to do now if it was nearly as 
uh, you know, succinct in telling that kind of story, I think you could have had a decent film out of it. The problem is, is it's not. It's it's convoluted, and you have to watch it a bunch to get that. And I only know that because I've been watching this movie for ten years and have read the book twice. I still don't get anything in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I mean, okay, they're having these manifestations, hallucinations that in the end are taking them to like different areas within the spaceship. So it's not really real, but yet it is real enough to kill the other people. I'm not. Yeah, that's that's yeah, I can't explain it because that's the thing to me is that at one time you have fire that is so horrendous that it kills people, but then it automatically goes away and there's like, you know, there's damage residual from it, but it's just gone. And I'm like, well, if it can just go away like that, can't the damage just be reversed too? Can it all be in your head that you're doing that? It can it all be vanilla sky? Yeah, because because if the hallucination of the squid is attacking the station, which is then causing it to malfunction and have problems which are causing the fire, which is, you know what I'm saying? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it makes it, sense if you follow the logic of the movie. The problem is, is that the movie is so convoluted and poorly done and strung together that it's hard to give it this and keep going with it. Like You have to be so down in the tank for this thing from the beginning to even let this go by that that's the only way that you'll you'll be able to survive through it. And well, what about this? I mean, I mean, at the end, they're just like, they're, you know, after they escape and they, they he ends up hitting the button in probably one of the most like, un, you know, like climatic scenes I've ever seen. And, and then <laughs> <laughs> it's so fucking bad. And then they're in the ship and they're, um, you know, sitting there going, you know, we, we still have this power and stuff like they're fucking He-Man. And, um, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to choose to forget. Why not choose to bring back the people that died? Because if you can <laughs> obviously manifest squids and all this other shit, which is real enough to kill someone, why don't they just go, hey, we want Liv Schreiber back. Let's just hallucinate him back. And, oh, my God, here he is right there. And he's he's got a bucket of fried chicken for us. I mean, this is great. I mean, Why can't you go back in time and say, no, we're not going down? Like that, that, the thing is, is that wouldn't the, that have been a better ending? For well, you? it would have you been, but it? here's here's the thing. Hold on, hold on a minute, though. It, it would have been, but it would not have been true to the warped logic of the film. Is that you can never go back. You you really can't. You can't reverse things that have happened. You can only make better choices based upon your newest knowledge. And this it's something that that uh, Hoffman and and uh, Samuel L. Jackson talk about a couple different times. Is that Samuel L. Jackson is the nihilist of the group. He's like, we're all going to die down here because obviously we would be dead because that's how we didn't know anything about any of this to begin with, is that we never got back to the surface to tell anybody about it. And the fact that they wind up back on that ship, Hoffman says, how are we here? How are we not dead, Harry? Because, you know, how did we you know, make it out of this? Because we should be dead. Uh, after all of this and they realize is that it's because we never tell these people about the sphere we never tell them about what happened we tell them we don't know and we just forget the whole power of it and that's it and together that's what they do i mean i i but get it, that it doesn't it's just, work like that though it's never worked like that in the entire movie is that everything has been done in their subconscious so it's always been done without their direct influence like you know with their with their main conscious i guess you could say it's all been done 
behind the scenes of their brains and something that they can't well, control. But, but, but only because they, they weren't. It? Well, no, but only because they weren't aware of it. That's the thing is that they had they the opportunity. And they still couldn't get out of the hallucination. And it took like Dustin Hoffman, like leaning forward, like he's going to vomit to be able to hit the button. <laughs> no, that's exactly how they got out of it, though, is they finally one of them finally realized we are just hallucinating all of this. That's what I'm saying is that they develop the awareness and the consciousness of how this thing works as they go along with it. And what they decide together is that we, you know, mankind can't be trusted with this. Now here's a twist that's in the book that is not in the film. And I, they shot this and test audiences didn't get it much. Like I think they probably didn't get a lot of this movie and they went back and redid the ending that we have now. But in the book, Beth doesn't give up the power. She acts like she does, but she says something and does something at the end that lets Norman know she's fooled them all and she's still got it. And that's how it ends is with that little bit of a cliffhanger. I actually would have liked that better if one of them, you know, the the damaged one, whatever, one of them would have said, screw that, I'm hanging on to the power. I think that would have been interesting and would have been fun to play they still had it though i mean for all intents and purposes they thought they blew everything up well they thought they they thought they blew it all up but they didn't know they blew the sphere up because they never knew what it was made of anyway what they realized they still had the power is because they're still alive if they had ever mentioned it, it there's no way they could be alive and not have had knowledge of that sphere ahead of time because it would have changed the course of history because then when the thing goes when future comes around and those astronauts are you know out there flying around through the black holes and stuff they would have known that oh we don't need to do that because we're going to wind up crashing 300 years in the future if they never tell anybody that story then that can never happen. So that's what they figure out. And that's how they know they still got the power to let it go and to forget about it because uh, if- they could have just pulled an Indiana Jones and just like, had like <laughs> them just kind of, you know, like when they, you know, put the arc away in the thing. I mean, they could have literally, I mean, if they would have came back and like, you know, yeah, it but been, no, it no, been like Ripley. In the eighties, though, that's what we did. No man, nobody would have bought that in the late nineties. We all knew what happened. You got executed for knowing shit. Like everybody knows that. So there's no I mean, way that they'd have bought that. Have been better though, if they got up and they survived it, and they're like, "Wait a minute, how? You know, we know what happened, and also, you know how." How, you know, it doesn't make any sense because if we know, then we're going to let everybody else know and they're going to know this in the future. And then they get locked away in an insane asylum because they went and blew up everything. Well, and who knows if that doesn't happen in one of the other iterations. Again, this is a big circle that you're thinking about here, because what happens at the end is the sphere takes off and the Navy goes, what the hell was that? And then the next thing you do is you see it (laughs) flying through that black hole. So what you're to understand is that the sphere went back to where it was from. It encountered that other spacecraft flew back through that black hole and the circle completes. I mean, that's, that's what's supposed to be happening there at the end. Now, it's not yet to know, you know, kind of think about it a lot to get that, but that's what goes down at the end of this film. It all circles back on itself. Uh, that's what a boring life for the sphere. He's going to keep on encountering the same things over and over and over again. Groundhog Day for the sphere. That might have been an interesting sequel. So <laughs> don't don't space drive angry. So I mean, yeah, I the, the last thing, know, the sphere jumping out of the water was hilarious. Well, it's almost as hilarious as Cindy and Sandy, the dolphins jumping out of the water at the end of Jaws 3D. I mean, it's about the same scene. Yeah, but dolphins are cute though. This is just a disgusting, you know, re- disgustingly rendered sphere. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're probably right. So I think we're at the point of the podcast where we're going to do the most obvious thing uh, we're going to do tonight, which is final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings for Sphere. What are yours, Nick? Small popcorn. This is a terrible movie. This is probably out of all the movies that we've reviewed, Jay, all of them. This is the worst. Wow. You're going to call me nuts. You're going to think, you know, something like Blair Witch 2 or Terror Vision or AVPR. Yeah. You know, no, no, this is worse because. Holy cow. (laughs) it, It is. It is. It is because it had the talent there between the actors. It did. I mean, you, you had four pretty good leads. You had an author who is, you know, he's not up there with someone like, let's say, like Stephen King or something as far as notoriety or just, you know, public influence or something like that, but a pretty good writer. You know what I mean? He, he's created a lot of really significant pieces of art throughout the years with Jurassic Park and he's part of ER and, you know, just, just many, many good things. And it's it didn't come together like peanut butter and chocolate. You know, we have a bunch of good stuff and it really makes something that's even better. This is like putting like orange juice and chocolate together. It's just it's it's <laughs> disgusting. It's 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 not right. It's just it's it just makes you want to vomit. And that's really what this movie is is it's just a big giant sphere of vomit. And <laughs> it's the worst movie we have reviewed thus far. It is. I mean, like I said earlier, I have never, ever, ever sat in a movie before, and I was completely sober too, and actually yell at the TV. I have never done that before, and I was doing that today. Just with the stupidity and just how dumb these characters were. I mean, this is worse than Prometheus, as far as how much I just wanted to go in that TV and just slap them, where I'm like, Oh, you guys are so worried that you guys aren't going to survive. Well, guess what? Get the fuck out of there. Just get in the submarine and get the hell up. I mean, it's like the stupidity of these characters who are supposed to be really, really smart was so frustrating. So to me, this is a small popcorn, the lowest of the low. This is the worst movie that we reviewed. I don't know if it's the worst one you and I've reviewed together. I know it's not the worst thing I've ever reviewed. That that is a distinction held uh, famously by after last season that people go listen to that one and and the room and decide between those two which one they think is worse. But I think this movie is incredibly flawed and frustrating because it's it has so much potential and the setup of it is so good i mean it the those first half hour yeah it's an homage a rip off whatever you want to say of alien it's doing that kind of thing but that works that hits my sweet spot i'm enjoying that kind of thing then it just derails into cheesy haunted house crap underneath the sea that it just doesn't work that's the thing is it it just doesn't work on on any level and I, I hate that, too, because I want to like this movie. I mean, the setup of it, the, the concept, I'm down for the, the intellectual road that Crichton wants me to go down on this one. But I, by George, it it just doesn't want me to like it. Like, it, it will not do the things it needs to do for me to give it a real pass. Now, the thing is, if I gave this a small popcorn, then I'm saying it's on the level of like Critters 4 and Hellraiser 5, 6 and you know stuff like that. 
I don't, it's not that bad. It's yes, convoluted it and frustrating. <laughs> but to me, this is the definition of what I've argued for years is medium popcorn in some ways. Medium popcorn can be two things. It can either be eh, kind of fun, matinee, just sort of throw it away, put your brain off and have fun. Or it can be the most frustrating, middling experience you can have watching a film. And that's what I feel like with Sphere is that, gum! it could be so much better than it is, but it just refuses to be. And, and so I'm going to give it a medium popcorn based on that ranking and that kind of wow. A scale. Wow. Uh, yeah, because it is middling. I mean, it is frustrating as hell. I'm not going to lie. This movie sucks, but it's not so horrible you couldn't watch it. Like, AVPR, to, like, to, for you to say this is worse for you than AVPR blows my mind because you freaking hated that movie. And as an Alien fan, I think you're, like, required to hate that movie. I don't think well, you can like that I, at I look, all. I look at it like this, Jay, is growing up, playing sports, all that stuff is the worst word that could ever be thrown at you is potential. Mm -hmm. Because that means that you have all the tools, you have all the gifts to do something greater than what you're doing right now. And I always I hate that word potential. And that's what this movie is. It, it had the potential to be pretty good, but it just falls flat in every area. And I would rather give something that you know, like AVPR, which had two shitty directors, a shitty cast, a shitty premise. There was the, the, the movie was born stupid. So there's no reason it was going to be stupid from begin with. But this movie had all the potential to be good and it just shit the cake on it. I mean, it was just it was terrible. And that's why I just I look at it where I'm like, good author, you know, for all intents and purposes, a good book, a good cast, a good director. And this is what we get. So to me, that's just having uh, something that has so much potential and then being so disappointed to me is much worse than something that never had a chance to begin with. I see what you're saying, and that's an excellent argument. I'll say this, though. If Tim Curry had been the voice of Jerry, I think you would like this film a lot better. Oh, so, if, so. If, if everybody was played by Jim by, by Tim Curry, it would have been great. <laughs> just, just imagine having like Tim Curry play every role. Having You can bring this back in, in Off-Broadway where the Tim Curry does a one-man version of Sphere. So like, I would I would want to see that. That that holds some mild amusement, but well, I think you I make think, your... I think Tim Curry watching Tim Curry have a stroke would be more entertaining than watching this movie. Oh, that hurt. So, well, I think you made your point clear and and this has been fun to review even if it wasn't necessarily very fun to watch. So, I'd be interested to see what the audience thinks about this one out there. I mean, you know, people love this book like you say, but the movie, I, you know, you get both sides of the coin. Some people love it, some people hate it. So, it will be interesting to hear from you all what you think of it out there in Listerland. Do you want to know who likes this movie? Is everybody running for president right now? Every single person. They all love Sphere. So that just tells you everything you need to know. For all for different reasons. So, well, folks, thanks for joining us in this latest edition of Filmstrip. Of course, you can visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies to find all the other episodes in our archive. Some of the things we've mentioned tonight, you know, we've done Hellraiser. We've actually done The Critters stuff uh, the alien series all of stuff. which are better than this movie <laughs> <laughs> Blair Witch I mean it's all out there you can also check out the Buffy podcast the Art of Slaying a link from there and the Fabish Factor film uh, discussion podcast as well until next time for Nick I'm Jay thanks for listening to Filmstrip thank you for listening to Filmstrip you can find more episodes on our website continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies 
please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Film Strip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.